Okay. So, uh, we're going to continue on with the book of Joshua thus far. Uh, when are we ready, Maxwell, feel free to just read, and I'll expound at the end. All right. <clears throat> A reading from the book of Joshua, chapters 8 through 9, the capture and destruction of Ai. The Lord said to Joshua, take all the soldiers with you and go up on up to Ai. Don't be afraid or discouraged. I will give you victory over the king of Ai. His people, his city, and land will be yours. You are to do to Ai and his king what you did to Jericho and its king. But this time you may keep its goods and livestock for yourselves. Prepare to attack the city by surprise from the rear. So Joshua got ready to go to Ai with all his soldiers. He packed out 30,000 of his best troops and sent them out at night with these orders. Hide on the other side of the city, but not too far away from it. Be ready to attack. My men and I will approach the city. When the men of Ai come out against us, we will turn and run, just as we did the first time. They will pursue us until we ha have led them away from the city. They will think that we are running from them, as we did before. Then you will come out of hiding and capture the city. The Lord your God will give it to you. After you have taken the city, set it on fire, just as the Lord had commanded. <laughs> These are your orders. So Josh sent them out, and they went to their hiding place and waited there, west of Ai, between Ai and Bethel. Joshua spent the night in camp. Early in the morning, Joshua got up and called the soldiers together. Then he and the leaders of Israel led them to Ai. The soldiers with him went toward the main entrance to the city and set up camp on the north side, with a valley between themselves and Ai. He took about 5,000 men and put them in hiding west of the city, between Ai and Bethel. The soldiers were arranged for battle with the main camp north of the city and the rest of the, of the men to the west. Joshua spent the night in the valley. When the king of Ai saw Joshua's men, he acted quickly. He and all his men went out toward the Jordan Valley to fight the Israelites at the same place as before, not knowing that he was about to be attacked from the rear. Joshua and his men pretended that they were retreating and ran away toward the barren country. All the men in the city had been called together to go after them, and as they pursued Joshua, they kept going farther away from the city. Every man in Ai went after the Israelites, and the sea was left wide open, with no one to defend it. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Point your spear at Ai. I am giving it to you. Joshua did as he was told, and as soon as he lifted his hand, the men who had been hiding got up quickly ran into the city and captured it. They immediately set the city on fire. When the men of Ai looked back, they saw smoke rising to the, the sky. There was no way for them to escape, because the Israelites who had run toward the barren country now turned around to attack them. When Joshua and his men saw that the others had taken the city and that it was on fire, they turned around and began killing the men of Ai. The Israelites in the city now came down to join the battle. So the men of Ai found themselves completely surrounded by Israelites, and they were all killed. No one got away, and no one lived through it, except the king of Ai. He was captured and taken to Joshua. The, Josh, the Israelites killed every one of the enemy in the barren country where they had chased them. 
Then they went back to Ai and killed everyone there. Joshua kept his spear pointed at Ai and did not put it down until every person there had been killed. The whole population of Ai was killed that day, 12,000 men and women. The Israelites kept for themselves the livestock and goods captured in the city, as the Lord had told Joshua. Joshua bur burned Ai and left it in ruins. It is still like that today. He hanged the king of Ai from a tree and left his body there until evening. So, uh, at sundown, Joshua gave the orders gave orders for the body to be removed and was thrown down at the entrance to the city gate. They covered it with a huge pile of stones, which is still there today. The law is read at Mount Ebal. Now Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel. He made it according to the instructions that Moses, the Lord's servant, had given the Israelites. As it says in the law, Moses, an altar made of stones which have not been cut with iron tools. On it, they offered burnt sacrifices to the Lord, and they also presented their fellowship offerings. There, with Israel, the Israelites looking on, Joshua made on the stones a copy of the law which Moses had written. The Israelites, with their leaders, officers, and judges, as well as the foreigners among them, stood on two sides of the Lord's covenant box, facing the Levitical priests who carried it. Half of the, half of the people stood with their backs to Mount Gerizim, and the other half of their backs to Mount Ebal. The Lord's servant Moses had commanded them to do this when the time came for them to receive a blessing. Joshua then read aloud the whole law, including the blessings and the curses, just as they are written in the book of the law. Every one of the commandments of Moses was read by Joshua to the whole gathering, which included women and children, as well as the foreigners living among them. The Gibeonites deceived Joshua. The victories of Israel became known to all the kings west of the Jordan, in the hills and the foothills, and along all the coastal plains of the Mediterranean Sea as far north as Lebanon. These were the kings of the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They all came together and joined forces to fight against Joshua and the Israelites. But the people of Gibeon, who were with, who were Hivites, heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, and they decided to deceive him. They went and got some food and loaded their donkeys with worn-out sacks and patched-up wineskins. They put on ragged clothes and worn-out sandals that had been mended. The bread they took with them was dry and moldy. Then they went to the camp of, at Gilgal and said to Joshua and the Israelites, We have come from a distant land. We want you to make a treaty with us. But the Israelites said, Why should we make a treaty with you? Maybe you live nearby. Then they, sa they said to Joshua, We are at your service. Joshua asked them, Who are you? Where did you come from? And they told him the story. We have come from a very distant land, sir, because we have heard of the Lord your God. We have heard about everything that he did that he did in Egypt and what he had done to the two Amorite kings east of Jordan, King Zahan of Heshbon and King Og of Bashan, who lived in Ashtaroth. Our leaders and all the people that live in our land told us to get some food ready for a trip and go and to go and meet you. We were told to put ourselves at your service and ask you to make a treaty with us. Look at our bread. 
when we had when we left home with it and started out to meet you it was still warm but look now it is dry and moldy when we filled these wineskins they were new but look when they, they are torn our clothes and sandals were are worn out from the long trip the israelites accepted some food from them but did not consult the lord about it Joshua made a treaty of friendship with the people of Gibeon and allowed them to live. The leaders of the community of Israel gave their solemn promise to keep the treaty. Three days after the treaty had been made, the Israelites learned that these people did indeed live nearby. So the people of Israel started out and three days later arrived at the cities where these people lived. Gibeon, Kafera, Beroth, Kiriath, and Yarim. But the Israelites could not kill them because their leaders had made a solemn promise to them in the name of the Lord Israel's God. All the people complained to the leaders about this, but they answered, We have made our solemn promise to them in the name of the Lord God of Israel. Now we cannot harm them. We must let them live because of our promise. If we don't, God will punish us. Let them live, but they will have to cut wood and carry water for us. This was what the leaders suggested. Joshua ordered the people of Gibeon to be brought to him. And he asked them, why did you deceive us and tell us that you were from far away when you live right here? Because you did this, God has condemned you. Your people will always be slaves, cutting wood and carrying water for the sanctuary of my God. They answered, we did it, sir, because we learned that it was really true that the Lord your God had commanded his servant Moses to give you the whole land and to kill the people living it in it as you advanced. We did it because we were terrified of you. We were in fear of our lives. Now we are in your power. Do with us what you think is right. So this is what Joshua did. He protected them and did not allow them, um, allow the people of Israel to kill them. But at the same time, he made them slaves to cut wood and carry water for the people of Israel and for their Lord's altar. To this day, they have continued to do this work in the place where the Lord has chosen to be worshipped. Okay, so just to backtrack a little bit. Um, so as we've seen from here at the beginning of this book, Joshua almost seems to be like a, a new Moses type figure. Um, and in some ways superior, but in other ways, as we'll see later on, he'll be inferior. One, one concrete example is um, the fact that the second generation of the wilderness was uncircumcised. They had never been circumcised. And so as soon as they got into the promised land, uh, Joshua made sure to have them circumcised. So you see him sort of um, succeeding Moses, or at least surpassing him in that sense. Um, any f and of course, we have already highlighted um, the direction the spies went and how they went without a hitch. Uh, they followed Joshua's command as opposed to the spies with Moses. They had that, you know, discourse with him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I'd also like to take notice of when they capture the city of Jericho, it's a liturgical and miraculous procession right and so what does it say in these chapters that they're to do the same with the city of Ai. however 
um, the issue is when one of the members did not heed the call for harem warfare or total warfare. Um, and so he kept some of the possessions from the city of Jericho. So the Lord's power and presence did not accompany the Israelites in the battle against Ai, which led to their defeat. Um, now, once the sin of Achan is removed from the people, the Israelites are enabled to defeat the city of Ai. And that's what we read here. And so just keeping these things in mind, um, the importance of having this fidelity to God, following his commands, as even as, as small as they may be. Um, notice also you see Joshua, again, fulfilling that sort of role. Uh, as a new Moses type figure, and he gets a copy of the law of Moses upon stones, um, just as Moses himself had a copy of the law. Um, he performs the covenantal renewal exactly as Moses commanded, and he solemnized and sealed the covenant here in chapter 8. And so in chapter 9, we see the Gibeonites, of course, they trick um, the Israelites, pretending to be poor. Um, so that they may establish a covenantal oath with them. And see see the importance of the covenantal oath, how binding it is. Um, although they did it in such a greedy-like fashion, which of course they pay by um, being put sort of under the feet of the Israelites there to um, do hard labor. They're almost like uh, sacristans in a sense, um, always working for the temple in the temple. And that's their punishment. And so you can think back to um, Israel himself, who, um, in a sense, stole the blessing, which, of course, we've been over how he was rightly entitled to the blessing. Or, yeah, Jacob, right? Israel was entitled to that blessing because it was given to him by his brother. However, he did so in a sneaky fashion, and thus he had to work um, to wed his wife. And he was tricked as well. So you can see all these parallels um, that although a perceived good seems to happen, you know, Jacob gets the blessing, right? Um, he still has to pay for his deceit. Um, and likewise, these Gibeonites have been saved from the wrath of the Israelites. But notice also their faith in God. See, they say themselves that um, they saw the Lord it says here that the Lord thy God had promised to serve Moses to give you all the land and to destroy all the inhabitants thereof. Therefore, we feared exceedingly and provided for our lives, impelled by the dread we had of you and took this counsel. So you see, they, they almost had a implicit faith in God and in his power, really, uh, that he would lead the Israelites. And it's almost... Um, you know, it almost recalls what happens later on in the Gospels. You know, the Gentiles, um, think of at the foot of the cross. You have that Gentile, the centurion. Truly, this was the Son of God. When you have leaders of the faith like Caiaphas and um, the Sanhedrin who don't even care that they've crucified Christ. Um, and in fact, even glory and kind of revel in it as well. Um, see the implicit faith of that Roman centurion there. Uh, and this is almost like a like a figure of what is to come, which, of course, um, is really interesting to see how, as uh, Dr. Scott Hahn had put it, quoting someone else, um, 
history does not repeat itself, but it certainly rhymes. And you can clearly see that with the many, many typologies of the Bible itself. Anyways, um, Jimena, whenever you're ready, feel free to read uh, Proverbs. Proverbs 31. The teachings of King Lemuel's mother. The words of King Lemuel's, an oracle that his mother taught him. No, my son, no, no son of my womb, no son of my vows, does not give, do not give your strength to woman, your always to, your ways to those who destroy kings. It is not for kings, O oh, Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to desire str strong drink, or else they will drink and forget what has been decreed and will pervert the rights of all the afflicted all the afflicted give strong drink to one who is perishing and wine to those who bitter distress and let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more speak out for those who cannot speak for the rights of all this this dispute Speak out, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. O deal to a capable wife, a capable wife who can find. She is far from, she is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack on gain. She does good. He, she does good. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant and brings her food from far away. She arises while it is still night and provides food for her household and takes for her servant girls. She considers a field and buys it with the fruit of her hands and plants a vineyard. She grills, she girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out of the of, out of a light out of night. She puts her hands onto the staff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She is not afraid for her household when it snows, for it is her household are, are clothed with crimson. She makes herself covering. Her clothing is fine, linen and purple. Her husband is knowing in city gates, taking his seat among the elders of the land. She, she makes linen garments and sells them. She supplies the merchants with, with lashes. Strength and dignity, dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time of time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of her kindness and of her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of illness. Her children rise up and call her happy, her husband too, and praises her. Many women have done ex. Ex excellently, but 
you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her a share in the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the city gates. Okay, cool. So this last chapter, um, these are words of a king, which was advice from his own mother, essentially saying to avoid indulgence in sex and alcohol, but to provide mercy and justice for the poor, dying and the distressed. It's almost like the social doctrine of the old covenant. And then you have a sort of epilogue of the valiant woman. Um, it could be, it's been translated as you know, noble woman, good wife, woman of worth. But more accurately, it's like a woman of force, a woman of valor, of strength. Um, it's usually tied to that of like an army, right? And so there are mighty men of valor. And so the same, it's, usually, it's the same Hebrew word there. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. But um, take my word for it, I guess. Uh, and so Proverbs here, in a sense, brings about this or speaks of this woman of valor or a valiant woman. And so the poem begins by stating the woman of valor is far more precious than jewels. This statement was also made about wisdom herself, not once, but twice in the prologue. Um, Proverbs 3.15 says she is more precious than jewels and nothing you can desire can compare with her. And Proverbs 8.11 says for wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. So the obvious literary connection here is Lady Wisdom um, sort of on two different levels of meaning. Um, the prologue is a description of Lady Wisdom uh, and so also, in a sense, um, is the epilogue. And so here are some parallels between Lady Wisdom and the Valiant Woman. To be the first, of course, I've already mentioned, more precious than jewels. Um, says here, she has slaughtered her beast, she has mixed her wine, she has also set her table, she has sent out her maids to call, it's Proverbs 9, and here about the valiant woman, she brings her food from afar, she rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and tasks for her maidens. Um, here it says, um, repays her love with prosperity. So I love those who love me, this is Proverbs 8, Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and prosperity. I endow with wealth those who love me. And then here is Proverbs 31, the valiant woman. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good, not harm, all the days of, his, of her life. One other comparison is nothing you can desire can compare with her. And then it says many women have done exceed excellently, but you surpass them all. And so towards the end of this section, you should already be thinking of, you know, Mary um, and the Magnificat. Uh, primarily, you know, blessed are thou among women, right? And blessed is the fruit of thy womb. Mary herself says, all generations shall call me blessed. Uh, and so here it says in Proverbs thirty-one twenty-nine, many women have done exceedingly, but you, the valiant woman, surpasses them on. And so it says... The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Again, speaking of lady wisdom primarily. And then the valiant woman, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And so what does Jesus say in the Gospels later on? It says, um, I think it's the Gospel of Mark. A lady comes up to him and says, blessed are the paps that nursed you. Um, 
and the womb that bore you? And Jesus says, no, rather blessed is the one who hears the word of um, my father and keeps it, right? Um, and so that, in fact, was Mary. She was blessed for that reason, for following um, the Lord. One thing I want to draw on, just like a historical perspective of this, is many people want to claim that, oh, the Bible's misogynistic and patriarchal, whatever, whatever. When here, very clearly, um, the sacred author could have chosen to embody wisdom as a king, a priest, prophet, or a sage, but instead he does a wife and a mother. And it defies, utterly destroys the modern caricature that the sacred authors are misogynistic and whatever else you may hear nowadays. I want to draw real quick on the history and the tradition of the church. Um, the woman of Proverbs 31 has frequently been seen as a model for Christian women, as well as believers generally, a type of the church, and even a type of the Virgin Mary. So I'm going to quote to you real quick um, an example of each of those. Primarily, in the moral sense, a virtuous woman. So this is from St. Gregory of Nazianzus. He saw his own sister, St. Georgonia, as an image of a virtuous woman. He says here, The divinely inspired Solomon in his instructive wisdom, I mean in his Proverbs, praise the woman who keeps her house and loves her husband. He praises her who is encouraged honorably at home, who performs her warmly duties with fearless courage, and who exhibits all other qualities for which he extols in song the modest and industrious woman. If I were to... If I were to praise my sister on such counts, it would be like praising a statue for its shadow. And so here in that moral sense, the virtuous woman, the lady wisdom, right, um, are supposed to be a model for Christian women, how they should live their lives. Um, and it's truly beautiful. And moving forward, um, how these virtues are applied to the bride of Christ. This is St. Cassius of Arles, he says, the Catholic Church was not only preached after the coming of our Lord and Savior, but from the beginning of the world. It was designated by many figures and rather hidden mysteries. Indeed, in Holy Abel, the Catholic Church existed in Noah, in Abraham, in Isaac, in Jacob, and in other saintly people before the advent of our Lord and Savior. Truly, Solomon says of her, who shall find a worthy wife? What does he mean, who shall find? Here, we should understand difficulty not impossibility of finding her. That valiant woman is the church. And later, uh, St. Paul himself will say that husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so she may be spotless without blemish. Perfect, right? This perfect woman, um, this valiant woman, this lady wisdom. And so finally, the church recognizes in certain descriptions of the valiant woman, um, striking anticipations of the characteristics of the mother of God, who Christ himself who Christians since ancient times have invoked as the seed of wisdom. So it says here, Proverbs 31, 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. The words of Mary, let it be done to me according to thy word. Do whatever he tells you there at the wedding of Cana. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Literally, the Magnificat, as I already stated, all generations will call me blessed. Uh, many women have done exceedingly, but you surpass them all. More blessed are you than all women. Um, blessed are you among women, right? Um, the words of St. Elizabeth to 
um, our dear sweet mother here. And so truly our mother is the perfect type of the church, the perfect fulfillment and type of Lady Wisdom, the valiant woman. And as you already know, as specifically for the women, how we're to imitate Mary um, in her in her virtues as the perfect model, as a Christian woman, as how she should be. Um, of course, reflecting that in the universal body of believers, the church, and everyday practical lives in your own life, meditating upon who Lady Wisdom is. Um, and further, with the recitation of the rosary uh, on who the Blessed Mother is and her actions throughout the life of our Lord, from his birth, his public ministry, his death and crucifixion, and subsequent resurrection. We can see all these beauties coming from our own lady, our own mother. Truly a blessed gift that we've been given. If there are no questions thus far of anything we've discussed, T, take it away. All right, we have Acts chapter 9. We're starting off with Saul's conversion. Now Saul, still breathing murderous threats against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus, that if he should find any men or women who belonged to the way, he might bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. On his journey, he was nearing Damascus. A light from the sky suddenly flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He said, Who are you, sir? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, for they heard the voice but could see no more. Saul got up from the ground, and when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. For three days he was unable to see, and neither ate nor, nor drank. Saul's baptism. There was a disciple in Damascus named Aeneas, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Aeneas. He answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and ask at the house of Judas for a man from Tarus named Saul. He is there praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias came come in and lay his hands on him, that he may regain his sight. But Ananias replied, Lord, I have heard from many sources about this man, what evil things he has done to your holy ones in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to imprison all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for this man is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles, kings, and Israelites. That will show him what he will have to suffer for my name. So Ananias went and entered the house, laying his hands on him, and said, Saul, my brother, the Lord has sent me, Jesus, who appeared to you on the way by which you came, that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. 
Immediately, things like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. He got up and was baptized, and when he had eaten, he recovered his strength. Saul preaches in Damascus. He stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus, and he began at once to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, that he is the Son of God. All who heard him were astounded and said, Is this not the man who in Jerusalem ravaged those who call upon this name, and came here expressly to take them back in chains to the chief priests? But Saul grew all the stronger and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus, proving that this is the Messiah. So we see, of course, right, this dramatic conversion of Paul, or Saul, right? Well, it really illustrates the power of an encounter with the risen Lord. We see that Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, right? And these words, they really reveal something about the uh, mystical body of Christ, right? Later, uh, Saul will develop this in his writings. We'll see that. So the community, this Christian community, in a very real sense, is the body of Christ. And we know, of course, from Matthew, if you recall, a good deed done to a member of the mystical body is done to Christ himself. And the opposite also holds true as well. Also, just some background information, right? Some uh, information here. You see at the beginning, verses 2 and 3, um, Saul is ordering this order that you know, if, it, if they find anyone in the way, this Christian community, often referred to the way, um, to bring them in chains, right? So Damascus lies outside of Palestine and Syria. In the Sanhedrin, it wielded power over all the Jews, even outside of Judea. And then we also see this call of the Holy Ones, right? Um which is really the saints, right? Or little s, but your holy ones. We know that. This is also a indication of the call of holiness that we all have. And um, we know also that those who are persecuted, um, those are martyrs, right? We know that uh, they are martyred for the faith. And here Saul was persecuting them, and thus uh, the holy ones. And we also see that Saul, uh, Jesus is saying to Ananias, right? This Saul, he's a chosen instrument. Uh, God specifically is calling um, Saul to the task of evangelizing the Gentile nations, right? And we also see that Saul and his preaching, right, which is uh, very much uh, kind of showing a resume, right, kind of uh, showing his preaching and his experience as an ap apostolic preacher. And we see that he says uh, that he is the Son of God, right? This uh, foundational teaching of Christianity, that of his divinity and his sonship, right, of Christ. And we continue. Saul visits Jerusalem. After a long time, had passed. The Jews conspired to kill him, but their plots became known to Saul. Now they were keeping watch on the gates day and night so as to kill him. 
But his disciples took him one night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in the basket. When he arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. Then Barnabas took charge of him and brought him to the apostles. He ordered, he reported to them how on the way he had seen the Lord that he had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken out boldly in the name of Jesus. He moved about freely with them in Jerusalem and spoke out boldly in the name of the Lord. He also spoke and debated with the Hellenites, and they tried to kill him. And when the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him on his way to Tarsus, the church at peace. The church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria was at peace. He was being built up and walked in fear of the Lord, and with the consolation of the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers. We see that uh, first Paul, right, he remained in Arabia for three years before traveling to Jerusalem to meet with this disciples there. And we'll see this in Galatians too. And so like the people of Damascus, right, the disciples in uh, Jerusalem, they were uncertain of Saul and his claim of conversion. Now, he gained uh, enough credibility of eventually, right, through his teaching and his fellowship, that the disciples decided to protect him um, when the Hellenites, Hellenists, uh, sought to kill him. And we see, like, Stephen, right, before him, we talked about him um, a few chapters ago, Saul also drew um, antagonism from the Hellenist Jews. So he, here we see that's happening. And we also see with the comfort of the Holy Spirit, right? The, the help of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit that builds, animates, and sanctifies the church, right? And now we see uh, Peter heals Aeneas at Lydia. As Peter was passing through every region, he went down to the Holy Ones living in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been confined to bed for eight years, for he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. He got up at once, and all the inhabitants of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Peter restores Tabitha to life. Now in Joppa there was a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was completely occupied with good deeds and almsgiving. Now, during those days, she fell sick and died. So, after washing her, they laid her out in a room upstairs. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him with the request, Please come to us without delay. So, Peter got up and went with them. When he arrived, they took him to the room upstairs where all the windows, all the widows came to him weeping and showing him the tunics and cloaks that Dorcas had made while she was with them. Peter sent them all out and knelt down and prayed. Then he turned to her body and said, Tabitha, rise up. She opened her eyes, saw Peter, and sat up. 
he gave her his hand and raised her up, and when she called the holy ones and the widows, he represented her, presented her alive. This became known all over Joppa, and many came to believe in the Lord, and he stayed a long time in Joppa with Simon a tanner. So, very right off the bat, right, we can notice that these descriptions of the healings of performing with Peter, they sound very much like the accounts of the healing by Christ, right? And this is for good reason, we know, because Christ conferred upon the disciples the same power to heal if requested in his name, right? They gave him this authority. Right? Jesus Christ heals you. Right? This was Peter saying, and Jesus explicitly uh, gave Christ the credit for healing, right? Of course, because it is he who heals through the church and her ministers, right? I also wanted to uh, note back uh, in verse 27 also, uh, we see that it's because of Barnabas that um, his that Saul's acceptance was uh, brought about with his friendship with Barnabas, and thus, you know, his credibility um, came up, was brought up, and he was protected by the other disciples when others were trying to kill him. But again, we see um, this authority given to this, the, the apostles by Christ. Um, and all they are able to do through the Holy Spirit, these graces um, that God is giving them to boldly proclaim the gospel um, and this beautiful conversion that we see of Saul. And we'll continue to see that in all that he does. If there is any questions, um, anything anyone would like to say, comment, um, again, right, we, it's so beautiful, um, seeing how the apostles are, are acting, um, in Persona Christi, right, and we talked about this yesterday as well with Philip, um, and continue to see this, healings, um, just as Christ had said it was going to happen, it's very beautiful, and all of the traditions that we see. If there was nothing anyone wanted to add, we can end in prayer.